We're back. It's The Foul Life. We got another awesome episode. I'm fired up. You just heard this man here a couple weeks ago on the Wild Foul Magazine gear issue, the annual gear issue. The episode that we discussed guns in Benelli with George Thompson, Skip Knowles. We have Mr. Tony Vandemore back, Habitat Flats in September. And I was just informed that the weather has changed, right, Mr. Tony? What's up with the weather in Missouri right now? Man, it's pretty awesome, you know. Our teal season opens tomorrow, uh, Saturday, September the 12th. And typically, you think of teal season, it's 90 degrees, you're sweating, mosquitoes are horrible, and mosquitoes are still going to be horrible. But this whole week, we've had probably the biggest front that I've, I can ever remember from Missouri uh, in early September. We've been in the 50s for highs all week. Crazy. Wow. It's like Beautiful, beautiful. So what, what does that put the lows at? The lows have kind of been right there in the the low 50s. I think we had a night or two in the upper 40s. I mean, it's it's felt like we're straight up fall. I mean, it's been beautiful. But How, on the on the the teal, it's what the the, the teal what? side typically, you know, it's 90 degrees when we're hunting. The lows are in the high 60s, the low 70s, and they're a pretty fickle bird. I mean, they're very much a a summer bird. The blue wings are. We start seeing them in August, you know, the the early ones coming through, and those birds end up in Mexico before we even open. But we've had a lot here early this week, and I think we've actually lost a few this week. So two questions come to mind. Did did dove season start on the 1st like it does most uh, in most areas around the country? Yeah, it did. Did you have a bunch of them? We had, had quite a few. We hunted a, uh, a public field on the first and uh, had a great hunt there were a lot of doves they didn't stick around very long had a cold rain that day and so but it was good while it lasted with this temperatures have you seen migrating mallards moving in already for this earlier is that is that kind of presumptuous to think that way no i i haven't seen any mallards but uh seen green wings which is not unusual um totally our teal season runs 16 days so basically two weeks in the first week primarily see all blue wings second week we're shooting you know a handful of green wings every day i've seen several green wings the last couple of days uh lots of shovelers seen a few gab walls few pintails so it's has, definitely things are things are good. has it been hard to accept the fact that that Canada's not happening. Like I know that we were all hopeful last time I talked to you, we were like, well, we don't know. But now, I mean, they're saying at least until the 21st, I don't think any Americans are going to the provinces to hunt. Has it been difficult? Um, and I know that business is business. I get that part of it. I know that you're going to adapt to that, but mentally do you get distraught or does your baseball career and your mental toughness just get you to the point where, well, let's do, let's just get the dove. Let's just get the teal or does this taking like, I took it for granted for so long, Tony, that we get to go up there. And when it's swiped out from underneath you, like a rug, I'm just like shook a little bit, like almost depressed a little bit, how they call it the duck depression or whatever. Like I was, I love going to Canada. It has, it been hard for you to accept yeah i mean absolutely from the business side it's tough but that's just i mean that's part of it but from the from the personal side absolutely i mean the the beauty of canada you know not every season is right from day one you know like say missouri ducks you know we're shooting little ducks whatever i like to shoot greenheads when it's cold clear little snow little ice that sort of thing so you're going to wait a while during season, even while season's open to get that. But when you go to Canada, I mean, it's right, right away. I mean, from, from day one. So having, having that September, October void of just incredible, incredible hunting. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a party of that that doesn't feel like it's there and don't get me wrong. I love the teal hunt and all that, but uh, I mean, it's not like calling in a mallard or calling in a big Canada goose. I mean, I like the calling part of hunting and, you know, teal hunting's not not a whole lot of calling involved for the most part. What about the actual? But I don't see. Oh, sorry, Tony. Go ahead. I say I honestly don't see Canada allowing anybody up there before the spring. I mean, at this point, what do they have to lose? I mean, they've lost a whole summer 
on the tourism side, the recreation side for the fishing camps, all the American fishermen go up there. They've already canceled half of the fall. I mean, basically, if you're looking at September 21, I mean, a big chunk of the hunting part of it. I mean, not a lot of people are going up there and, you know, in November, December, January to ice fish. So I, I just think they're like, you know, our, our cases in Canada are little or nothing right now. Let's just wait until spring. Why open it now and, and cause something, which I don't agree with the whole pandemic outlook in the first place, but. Oh, that makes two of us. It's 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 kind of weird seeing numbers come out of like what they are attributing to COVID now, and just it's so it's such a weird thought process for me to accept that this country has been shut down, Canada's shut down, the world shut down, and it's just it's still hard. I don't want to ever take away the fact that there are ill people or somebody did perish over this. I don't ever want it to be like, oh, you're just an ass because you you know you don't have a heart. No, that's not it. I'm sitting here going. In perspective, there's more people that have probably ended their lives because of depression over this deal than actually perished because of it. So it's just it's a weird mindset for me to know how many people are struggling struggling in Canada. You talk to the outfitters that you're so used to, like you being one of them up there. It's hurting a lot of those Canadian outfitters that don't necessarily get to be habitat flats come late October, November, December, January, February, all the way into spring snows, right? They don't have that to fall back on. And and they're just sitting there going, there's not a lot of Canadian locals that are going to book a hunt with me. So I just, I'm sad over it. I'm trying to accept it and figure out creative ways to help out where we can. But it's just, when you said that you don't agree with it, I started off trying to be more sympathetic to it, but now I'm almost like, wow, this was not worth what happened? Well, here's, here's my deal with it. I mean, I'm certainly sympathetic to it. I mean, you can't hide it. I mean, there's there's a lot of cases and all that. But for me personally, I've known several, several people that have tested positive for Rona, both young and old. And I guess I'm, I'm fortunate. I don't know anybody that's had a severe case, anybody that's been on a ventilator, anything that's anybody that's been that's felt more than just a little bit off or you know, I had a fever for four or five days. Um, but the same can be said for the flu. I mean, how many people, you know, get the flu and, and get over it? Uh, I know it's a bad deal and it's, and it's certainly lethal to, to a big portion of our population, but so is a lot of other diseases. Um, and speaking as a father, seeing my daughter out of school since March uh, that's, that's a tough thing to take because these young kids, especially they can't sit on this computer and learn. I mean, my daughter's six years old in first grade. Now she can't not sit on, on the computer and learn. I mean, they have to have the socialization part of it at that age is every bit as big as the education part of it. So I'm just fortunate, you know, Missouri, it's been, it's been, our governor is a Republican, whether good or bad, no, whatever. That's cool. You can say that. <laughs> He's been fairly liberal about the whole thing from uh, from day one. So, you know, my daughter's back in school every day um, in person. And um, I'm very blessed that, that that's taking place where I grew up in Illinois. You know, school's out right now. It's online. So it's a it's a bad deal. I mean, all the way around. I hate to get jaded or anything like that, but I would like to see what what this pandemic would have been in the second the second year of a first term president not an election year regardless of what party it is very well put i agree it's just weird the timing of it it's a it's what they call a coinkadink what my grandma used to say tony vandemore and yesterday i walked my daughter up she's got about a 70 yard path that you, you take up to the playground and the gate that she enters the school on and all these kids, my daughter's nine, she's in third grade and they're all in masks. And it's just weird seeing a bunch of six, seven, eight, nine year old, 10 year old, all the way up to fifth grade before middle school. Every one of them are in a mask on the playground and in the classroom in a mask. And I mean, I, I have pretty good lung capacity and I give that to like duck and goose calling over the years and competing and doing that. I can't wear a mask more than three minutes when I'm walking in a store and trying to grab some groceries real quick. You know, I just can't imagine being nine and she's adapting to it. Don't get me wrong, but I, 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 we never had going to school. I never had to encounter anything like that. If you were sick, you stay at home. 
If it snowed and you got a snow day, you're happy as heck and you got the sleds out and dad pulled us behind the truck. There was nothing like what I'm seeing in our world now. And I'm just like, wow, these kids, man, they just spent all these time out of school. The seniors and the high school kids, that's in a completely different level of missing those years and all that. But these little kids are wearing a mask all day, every day, five days a week in elementary school in our state. Absolutely. And then you throw in, I mean, how many kids across the country? I mean, all right. So let's take baseball, for example. I played baseball. Uh, hardly anybody is going to go to the major leagues, make any money on the deal. But how many kids, uh, high school athletes, are getting some of their college paid for with athletic scholarships across the country? It's a bunch. And, you know, these kids that aren't playing sports now, I mean, how, what are they going to do? I mean, the, the colleges aren't playing all their sports. I mean, it, it's a, it affects every, every aspect of life. And that's what's, that's, what's so hard to take. I mean, there's no real normal anymore right now, except your family. I it's, it is. And it's like, you, you can talk, it's like every discussion centers around it. But when you sit there and go, I'm not going to be ignorant. I want to discuss it. I want to learn like how we're going to come out of this. And I think that in two months in November, uh, November 4th, specifically, I think there's going to be big changes. How are you seeing it on the domestic side of business? I, I remember last time we talked, there was a few groups that were iffy. Have you, have any other dropped off or are more people more apt to get in the zone and get hunting now and not really worried about it i mean so far we have not not been affected by it my fear is that as all the hype goes on and all this we might get some last minute cancellations where oh man maybe i don't want to go ride this plane and, and go to this lodge and and do this but overall i think everybody is dying to get out i mean our bookings are are solid People can't wait to get here. Um, we're, we're changing a few things around the lodge, you know, just to be mindful of everything, you know, social distance and eating in different shifts to where the tables aren't so full. Um, lots of hand sanitizer and masks and all that for the staff. But, but overall, um, I think people are, people are kind of over it. I mean, how long can you, I mean, I, have, I shouldn't say that, have the wool pulled in your eyes, but I mean, people, Americans are not made to be put in a mask and not wander out of your house. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. I've seen a, I've seen a huge shift in people that are like, you know, you leave my house, you leave where I'm at right now and you start driving a little bit and you're like, man, the world is alive again. There people are, they're, they're working they're They're ready to roll. Restaurants are active again. I, I think that it's you want to say it's on the downward hill of this deal, but again, something can happen. And one of our governor, especially your California's governor, you know, they can make it tough on us, but you just got to, I'm, I'm thinking of it as like, Hey, it's positive or optimistic outlook from here on out. We're going to have a great fall. The California fires, the fire. I mean, the guys did the, the couple did the gender reveal the other day and started another one. We we've literally, woke up today. I woke up at 4 a.m. today, Tony Vandemore, with an email from my school district, my daughter's school district saying school canceled again. This is the fifth fire day in two weeks because not just where we shut down for months on COVID. Now the California fires, the smoke, you can't even see my city or, or Reno in, in, in the Sierras. So now this was the fifth canceled school day because of California uh, air quality coming into Nevada, um, which, you know, I feel for the Californians, but like you talk about a year, these kids are like piecing together this school year and then it's like they're right back on the computer they want them to do social distance learning on a fire day because they're so used to doing social distance learning on a covid day it's just like i, I can't you can't win in america right now you literally and i'm not like a pity party like oh poor us but it's like nothing is going our way canada shut down the fires are burning up hunting areas and homes and not that these people just lost their livelihood. Now they're actually losing their physical dwellings. And it's like, what is, tr what, is somebody trying to say something? Is somebody like in the higher power that be whoever you uh, believe in and pray to and get on your knees or whatever your spirit tells you? I'm not, a, I don't press religion, but Tony, is there somebody trying to tell us something like, Hey, y'all need to slow down, pump the brakes, start living a different way. I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know either. There's a lot of, a lot of prophecies that have been out there for a long, long time about stuff like this. Who knows? 
Take every day at a time right now. <laughs> it's just when I woke up and saw that email and I just was like, man, my daughter cannot get a routine going. And the kid's like, no school, right? They, like you said, they can't learn on these computers. But hey, back to Teal. At the Habitat camp, is the camaraderie the same? Is the energy the same? When you get a group of teal hunters that come in, are most of them locals? Do you book a lot of out-of-staters, non-residents that that love to flock in there for those little birds? Is the feeling the same, the energy that it would be like on a cold, crisp mallard day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have very few uh, Missouri clients, honestly. Uh, everybody comes from all over the country. Um, and they come in for the teal hunting. It's a good time of year. Typically the weather's nice. You know, it's great to get the kids out, that sort of thing. And man, they're fun to hunt. I love to hunt teal. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they're fast. They're beautiful. It's a lot of action. Um, if I had to choose, I'd take a mallard, but can't shoot a mallard right now. So I'm definitely going to shoot teal and they're great to eat. Do you, do you eat a lot of the teal at camp where like the hunters are like looking forward to that meal? Cause they are awesome to eat. Do, do your, do your cooks and the, in the crew there get them ready for lunch or dinner when the hunt's over? Um, we'll, we'll take, we, we typically try to do, uh, some appetizers and stuff. Um, I don't know that there's anything wrong with it, but you know, on the, on the migratory bird side and, and all that, there's kind of, I mean, technically, if somebody wanted to press it, I think there's a gray area where you're taking money and including meals that if you served, say, duck as a main course, that somebody could say you're selling wild game. Um, so we don't ever do anything like that. We'll do appetizers and, and let guys take ducks home with them. But we don't we don't serve them as a main course. Just, I don't know. Just oh, wow. Yes. Oh, wow. Because you're accepting money and providing meals as part of the package. Is it because it's not, is it, is it because it's not USDA certified or is it because of the lip, the limits and the feds when it comes to the game laws? Well, I, I think it more goes back to like the, the market hunting. I mean, you cannot purchase, um, you, you can't, you can't buy wild game, right? So if you're including meals, it, it, I don't think it's an issue, but if somebody wanted to interpret the law differently, uh, potentially they could say, we think that you can't be serving wild game because you're taking money for meals. I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't want to test it. So is the possession limit in Missouri three, three times your daily limit or double your daily limit? It's three times. Has, has that just come into effect in the last couple of years like it did here? Yep, absolutely. So what would you do on a three-day what would you do on a three-day hunt then back in the day when it was just two day? Two times the, the limit. Two times we, we would donate them. We'd, we'd take them to a food, uh, a food processor, you know, a bird processor, a commercial bird processor. They all get log, logged in there. We don't allow any ducks or anything to be brought back to the lodge. And then once they go through there, they can donate them and they'll take them to food banks and to the needy. Um, and still we, we do some of that now, but uh, you know, now it's not an issue with, with three day possession limit, but you still have an option to donate them. I mean, if you're not going to use them, I want to see them go to good use. So let me get this right. You kill the ducks, you, you line them up, you get a great picture. Like we're all used to and accustomed to seeing at Habitat Flats. You guys do a great job with that. Clients are happy. They leave there tagged with a tag on the strap that has the hunter's name, the license number, all of the information that if that guy that's transporting them to the local commercial plucker, the, the, the guy that's the, the company that's going to process and butcher these birds. If he gets stopped, he's got all the information on every strap. This is Habitat Flats. This is they've been logged. Do you do you log them into a book at Habitat Flats and keep a record of every day of what you're killing? I assume you do. Yeah, I, I keep a personal record, but we go a step further. Um, so before we leave the blind, everything is, you know, you've got your you've got your six ducks. And it's got a, a license number and everything on it. I've got mine. When we go to leave where we're hunting, your ducks go in your vehicle, mine go in mine. And then we go straight to the, the processing center. We do not even go back to the lodge. So you're going to come with, if you're a guest, you're coming with me to the processing center and you're signing your birds in, signing your name. Um, we just, it's, it's just easy. I mean, it's, why, why have that thing hanging over your head to worry about? You know what I mean? It's, it's only 
two miles from the lodge. So we make everybody stop there after the hunt before we come back to the lodge. It's, it's so smart because that is one corner that could be cut so easily with the adrenaline, the energy. Let's get to the cafe for some biscuits and gravy. Let's get back to the lodge for a nap or the football game on a cold Sunday, you know. And that's, that, that is one thing that people have to pay attention to. And it's awesome that you're educating them because hopefully they're picking up on that as they leave there. Like, hey, this is one corner that is that that can ruin a day, you know, if you cut that corner and don't abide by the federal and state laws. So I think it's great because you're, you're not just doing it for your business and your reputation and your legalities. You're teaching a lot of people. At, and I think that that's a big part of being a great outfitter is that that kid and that dad or that aunt or that uncle who's ever there, they're they're seeing it done right. So that I think that's badass that you guys make sure that that's happening daily. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of a lot of moving parts. So say you you leave the blind and stuff, they're separated, you know, they're zip tied, but you leave the blind and six people go out on a ranger. There was eight of you hunting. There's eight limits of ducks in there. Well, the game board's waiting at the truck for you. It might only be 200 yards away from the blind, but you're illegal. Uh, so we just, you know, you get back to the lodge. And what's the first thing everybody does? They run inside, put their stuff away. Somebody's going and grabbing a beer. They're going to go grab a sandwich. You're trying to fill out paperwork. Like, oh, where'd Joe go? Where's Bill at? Oh, God, he's in the shower. I got to do all his paperwork. So we just do it. We put the toe tags on in the blind. And guys are, hey, man, can't we do this at the lodge? No, we got to do it right now. Because when you go down the road, if somebody stops, stops you and they say, where are your ducks? You can actually absolutely show them these are my six ducks. Here's my toe tag with my name, license number, everything on it. And then we go straight to the processor. We're going to log them in real quick. It's going to take you five extra minutes, and then you are not going to have to worry about a thing the rest of the day. Otherwise, you go back to lodge. Now you got your, got your ducks in the back of the truck. Somebody forgot a, you know, somebody, one of the four clients riding in a vehicle. You pull three limits out of there. There's a limit that's stuffed under a pair of waders you don't even know about. You show up hunting the next day, and now there's six extra ducks. It's just uh, it's one less thing to have to worry about. I mean, there's enough to have to worry about anyway. Tony, when does the possession limit start? I, I'm getting – I think it's because I travel to so many different states, and I know that you've done the same in your hunting career. All of them are different. It's there's no ignorance to the law, right? It's the hunter's responsibility to educate him or herself and their kids if they're under the age of 16 what the laws are and abide by those laws of that state you're going to. When does the possession limit start during the hunt? Like, is it on a strap separated in the blind and with a tag on each strap? Or how 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 does it work if a game warden walks into the blind during the hunt? Well, so. I mean, technically, yeah, it, it starts as soon as you pull the trigger. Um, you have to know which birds are yours. So somebody comes into the blind, you got 10 ducks laying in a pile on the bottom of it, and game warden asks you, which, what'd you shoot? Well, I shot a greenhead. Which one of these seven greenheads is yours? How are you going to know? So what we do is all of our blinds, they've got game, game straps in front of each shooting hole. So there's four of us in there. Flock comes in. We kill seven. Uh, I killed one. You killed two. The other two guys killed two. We pick them up, bring them in the blind. All right, Chad, here are your two ducks. You put them on your strap in front of you. Each person puts them on a strap. So then also as the guide, it's easy. Like, hey, uh, hey, Chad, what do, you, what do you got left? How many do you need? You look down right in front of you on your strap. I got two greenheads on my strap. Okay, you can kill two more. And look, you know, watch for a gab wall or a teal. But everything that we do is on a strap immediately. And it's not like musical chairs or Chinese fire drill. I mean, there's no party hunt. So you can't, you know, you can't have two hen mallards and then accidentally kill another one, pass it down to your buddy who's only got one. When it's on your strap, that's your, that's your duck. So you have to know that, say you got two hen mallards on yours, we're like, Chad, you are 100% done on hen mallards single green heads when they come in that's what you're on uh pintails you've got your one pintail you are not allowed to shoot another pintail not allowed to shoot into a group of pintails uh your your gun sits there until a green head or a gadball or something besides a pintail comes in i mean there's there's no party hunting and and that's uh something you got to stick to 
So that is the guy, Tony Vandemore, sitting there, and you look down and you ask everybody, Chad, Brian, Clay, whatever, how, you got your six, you got your six. There's two straps out of a four, let's say a five-man group that are one short each. Now you as the guide, I assume, go, hey, Bob or Clinton, Bob, you're the only two shooting on this. Everybody else's gun is unloaded. The action's open because there's no party hunting. So if if every strap is full but two, just those two get to shoot on the next flock to kill their final, final greenhead, correct? Yeah, absolutely. What we what we do, uh, as soon as you've got your six, we zip time, fill out the paperwork, your gun's in the case. And then you get to watch your buddies finish the rest of their limit. Now your other buddy's done. His gun's cased, his ducks are tagged. He's he's watching. Um, absolutely no party. And that's something that probably gets broken, I mean, a lot across the country. I mean, just private groups, people hunting. Heck, I mean, we used to party hunt when I was a kid. We didn't know any better. Um but it's such a big deal anymore. You know, you, you need one duck as a group and two guys stand up to shoot. I mean, that's it's illegal. Uh, you have to know exactly what each person needs. And and once you're done, you're, you're done. I love that. And, and it's such a, you know, it's can become in somebody's eyes, like, man, it's like, you get to the blind and the birds are flying, that anticipation's rising, that adrenaline's going. And it's almost like people want to skip that part of it when it literally, besides the safety of that muzzle and the safety of your dog and your hunt group, it's the most important part of your hunting career to make sure that you are abiding by that. And you could always have the attitude like, I'm mad at them. They haven't been here for a month. We're, it's not what we're that's not what we're doing right that's not how the outlook has to be look we abide by these laws are set for for a reason and we're going to abide them they might be changed someday they might be manipulated someday by the government but we are not going to be the ones to manipulate them and i think it's awesome that that is like literally like a game plan it's part of your strategy and your clients are going to abide by that and the the guide is the boss yep absolutely i mean you you have to and, and i know it's you know, it's probably not, I shouldn't say not common knowledge, but I, I think there's a lot of people that, that don't, that don't follow it, you know, throughout the country. I mean, we'll have client guests all the time. that will be like, okay, you know, there's, there's four guests and a guide. So that's five people. Who are like, all right, we can kill 20 today. It's like, no, no, you, you can kill four. Each one of you can kill four. That's 16. Well, you've got a limit. Yeah, I, I do have a limit and I don't, sweat every day in summer to have somebody shoot my ducks. Like if, if, if anybody's going to shoot my ducks, it's going to be me. And you know, that's the other part of it is guiding every day. People, Oh, you're going to get burnt out on it. You know, you're going to get burnt out on it. it. It doesn't matter to me who pulls the trigger. I mean, most days I don't, I don't even shoot. I mean, when, when the guests get done, when it's right, I'll be like, all right, you guys want to stick around for 10 minutes and I'm going to shoot my four. And we might do that. But a lot of days, you know, by the time you watch five, six, seven, eight, ten limits get killed, I mean, that's that's the fun of it. I don't have to shoot. I mean, I'm there calling. I've got a wet dog, cup of coffee. I mean, what what could be better? If you can't watch a duck hunt and thoroughly enjoy it, you shouldn't be hunting, in my opinion. I love because it. Because you're missing, missing the best part of it. I agree 100%, Tony. What about the idea of cripples? How are cripples managed? Are they the responsibility of the hunter – or as a guide, is it legal? Like in snow goose season, Tony Vandemore's guiding, a hundred of them come in and y'all kill 30 of them and you wait, walk, you stand up and there's, you're going to go out and you can dispatch them because there's no limit, right? On uh, Does it matter against the limit to dispatch a cripple as the guide? If let's say that you're not filling your limit, but your clients, but your dog's out there and you want to make sure that the shot's in the right direction or whatever the case might be, is that a touchy, is that kind of a, a, a weird line to cross as well? Yeah, man, I, I think it's super, super gray. Um, I think it's all in the interpretation because technically speaking, whoever kills that duck, it's, it's their duck. So if you dispatch a cripple, you kill it, it's yours. That being said, I mean, I've talked to a lot of different game wardens, a lot of them, and I haven't had one person tell me, uh, no, you cannot shoot that cripple. Everybody said, no, we want you to get that bird any way possible. You get it. We, you know, you know how it goes. So it's not a big deal. We've got steady dogs. We shoot them. There's a couple of cripples in the decoys. Hey, hey, Bill, go ahead and shoot, shoot your cripple. Or Sam, shoot your cripple. 
where it comes into play is, you know, typically we get some older folks um, or maybe you got somebody that's, that's not in the best of shape or it's hard walking, silty, muddy, nasty bottom with snags. They sail one 80 yards out. How, how am I going to say, Hey, Chad, your duck just fell 80 yards over there, but it's crippled. I can't go after it. Well, you're my guide. You've got the damn dog. You go get it. Well, I can't because of, of this rule that I can't dispatch this duck. Um, so that's, that to me is the, the part that, that I disagree with a hundred percent. Um, but I think, I think technically you could be in violation of it. And to be honest with you, that's why most days I don't even, don't even shoot. Here's why it's crazy to hear you tell that example. That 80, that 70 year old man's there with his son, been looking forward to this hunt. He cripples it. He knows that it went down. You watched it go down. First of all, you got wanting waste, and I don't want to waste the meat. I don't want to waste that bird. I don't want a coyote or a hawk getting it that night. Um, he's not going to be able to go get it. If he might get 30 yards out there and get knee deep in mud, he might twist a hip. He might break an it. There's a lot of shit that could go wrong. You're the guide. You're in great shape. Your dog's in great shape. It does make no sense that you can't go over there and make sure that that man gets his duck because he shot behind it a little bit. He still put some BBs in it, but now that duck is going to, is not going to deserve the, 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 the ethical you know, harvest that he deserves or he, she deserves. If it happens to be a hen, it just, it makes no sense that you or your guide couldn't go get that. It is a gray area. And, you know, and then you get. You get the other side of the, the coin guys are like, well, you got a dog. I mean, what, what do you need to shoot a cripple for? Well, I got a niece for you. You got four cripples out there, especially on the water where a dog has to swim. How many are you going to lose if you're just waiting on your dog to go get them and bring each one back? I mean, somebody can say they got super dog and, and that's fine. I mean, I've had some great dogs too, but they are not going to get them all. I mean, they're going to swim off. They're going to get into a, a hole. They're going to go across the bank into another slough and be gone. I mean, so when you're out there in the water, I mean, the faster you shoot that cripple and it's no longer moving, no longer swimming away, no longer a cripple the easier it's going to be for that dog then to go around and start picking them up. Yep. Uh, and now they're on the, now they're in the blind, I they're think, on the strap. Yes. You're inhibiting, you're wasting more birds by, by, by that, by not going after the cripples, not dispatching them immediately. Then, you know, I guess the, the technical letter of the letter of the law. And then you're going to, the end of the day, you're going to experience the occasional client that, Hey, the bird didn't get brought back. I get to shoot another one. So now you're in that gray area of like, well, what do you mean? I mean, you, that bird's dead. He's over there. Well, you're not going to get it. You're not dispatch. I'm not going to get it. Your dog's not going to get it. The dog lost it or whatever. And now you as the guide are going, Hey, that counts against your limit or does it. And then there's just so much. That's why Tony Vandemore that this, this, the culture of the duck hunt, I, I don't like to call it a sport, even though it can be defined as a sport, but it's a lifestyle. This privilege that we get to do is intimidating to people, not just because of how much it costs. It's expensive. It's expensive to book a hunt. It's expensive to buy the gear if you're freestyling a trailer, decoys, boats. I mean, it's not, it's never ending, right? And then on top of that, the laws, the legalities. How do you identify that hen pintail? Is that a hen gadwall? No, that's a hen. No, it's a hen. Shoot it. Oh God, I already. That's another hen sprig. And then on top of that, shooting hours. And now you got possession limits. And now you got all this gray area. Gray area is the most intimidating part of waterfowling to me. I'm 45 years old. I'm a year or two older than you, and I still get intimidated by like, whoa, man, what's the right thing to do? Because I can't define the law in a lot of instances. Guarantee it. I mean, we even if we make, you know, again, talk to a lot of game wardens about it. if you make a legitimate effort to find that duck, a legitimate one. I mean, take 15 minutes out of your hunt, shut it down, try to find it, uh, and don't. Most have said that does not count. You can you can shoot no, we don't. Uh, it automatically counts no matter what. But like what we do, so you know, say you got your spinners going bunch comes in you kill six or seven there's a couple of cripples spinners are off the hunt's over until we are back in the blind with all those ducks i mean the hunt's over you can have a hundred of them come in at 10 yards and the guide can be 60 yards behind you looking for a sailor and can't shoot i mean hunt's over hunt's over until everybody's back the ducks are 
all picked up. Everybody knows what they have. Um, you know, looking looking on the other the other hand, so that that seventy five year old man or whatever um, that that can't go out there and get his own duck that he sailed at at seventy yards. Hunters are the best conservationists. It's our dollars, our license sales, all that that are helping preserve and conserve the birds that we love so much. So are we better to say, are we better off saying to this 75 year old man, I'm sorry, sir, if you can't walk out there 80 yards to pick up your own bird, then you're done. You're done duck hunting for the rest of your life. Or yes, hire a guide. If you've got a cripple that's beyond your, you know, beyond shotgun range, then the guide can pick it up or however, you know, dispatch it on the water or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Are we better off losing those or, or not? It's into, it's, it's, it's the, you said it perfect, Tony, the gray area. And then you got the federal law as opposed to the state law. Then you could be visited by a state warden, a state, you know, a, a state, uh, game warden or law enforcement, or you can have the feds uh, visit you that might interpret it. So much. there's just so many different interpretations, which causes what you define as gray area. I call it gray area. It's, it's a, it's a weird thing, but I, I would tell hunters to do your best. Don't do it intentionally. When you know that it's wrong, that's when we don't do anything. Now they say that like 98% of duck hunters that go out in the field, break at least one law a day on every hunt. Is it shooting before legal hours? Is it ending after legal hours? Is it the possession? Is it, is it, is it, is it baiting? Is it, there's so much stuff going on in our world. Don't do things when you know it's wrong. That's the first step. That's educate yourself and don't be, don't be, um, you know, intent, intentional to break the law. Don't intentionally do it. That's, that's an easy thing to say. If you're on a football team, your coach is going to say, Hey, you're going to jump off sides, but don't go out there and intentionally jump off sides every time to keep bringing the ball back. That's not what the team is meant to do. We're supposed to go that way. As hunters, we're supposed to move forward as a conglomerate, as that team is that champion is Lou Holtz getting us rallied up. That's what we're supposed to do as hunters. Don't intentionally make it bad for all the rest of us just because you think you can. When nobody's looking, that's when you should be doing the shit the right way. Okay. There are mistakes, Tony Vanamore, but don't, don't intentionally go out there and do it. Yeah. The laws are there for a great reason. And it goes back to the license sales and all that hunters are the best conservationists. And that's why we have the laws. Um, I, I don't think that most people are out there to intentionally break them, but those that do, I mean, yeah, throw the, throw the book at them. That's what it's for. Um, but it's all the little gray areas where you're still trying to do things right, but you might've forgot a tag or you something. I mean, it's tough. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be well-versed on it. When you're that guide and you have those last two hunters and Tony's the lead guide, last two hunters, they need one duck each. How big does the group have to be? Meaning the flock where Tony Vandemore is not going to call the shot with a, gr- a, a group of great paying clients. Let's say they've been there eight years in a row, which a lot of your clientele has at least eight years in a row going on way more. Wh- how big does it have to be to where you're like, guys, we're going to let these one get, go on. Not necessarily how big it has to be, but but what are they doing? I mean, if they're, they come in, if there's five of them that come in at a ball, no way we're shooting into that. If there's 20 of them that are, you know, spread out all throughout the hole, like, uh, and you're sitting right next to somebody, it might be, you know, anything over 10, a lot of times we'll let them go on. Um, but if there's, you know, say eight or nine, five to 10, something like that, and they're spread out, you're sitting right there with them. Like, Hey, Joe, Kill this, kill this green head on the far right. I mean, you basically tell them which one to shoot. Don't let them just go willy-nilly into the middle of the flock. You're looking on the edge. You kind of – and a lot of times as a guide, you know when to call the shot. So a couple of them come in, put it right in front, and there's six or eight that hover, and then they kind of bounce at the last minute. Let them go on and get out of range and then say kill them and – kill the two when they get up off the water so if it's a super water what jim wrong if, if ron quest refers to it as a mondo wad and you got 70 of them and it's green heads shining in that sun like those days you and i dream of do you put a show on for the clients and work them with the call and get them ready and say guys we're not going to shoot these but you're going to put see a show do most of your clients understand why you're not letting them shoot into a flock like that oh yeah yeah absolutely 
absolutely. I mean, we, we always have the hard and fast rule. Nothing over a hundred ever gets shot during season. Um, but most of the time I would say it's probably no bunches over 50. Um, I mean, you just, even if you just, you just start feeling bad, not because you might kill over. I mean, obviously that that's one reason, but how many are you educating? So you're sitting there, you need one duck and here comes 15 of them. I mean, pretty as a picture, put it front and center. Can I kill one? Now, hang on. Let's wait for that single. We'll watch this show. I mean, is that not the most beautiful thing in the world? Like, as soon as you pull the trigger, that moment in time's over. And that's what I said earlier. If you can't enjoy watching a hunt, you don't need to be hunting because that's the prettiest part of it. I mean, it's not about pulling the trigger, but watching. And if you know you're not going to pull the trigger and you're intently watching it, you're not as worried about covering up. You can see it, watch it unfold. I think it, it's a much more vivid memory and a better appreciation for what just took place than, oh, God, you know, hiding, 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 standing up real quick and killing one, and all you see is 30 other ones flying away. Uh, there's a lot more to it than pulling the trigger. If a client wants to experience dry land, dry corn with Tony Vandemore and Habitat Flats, because there's times I've been in Missouri where I've seen a field just get chock full of them. Like I'm talking a Canada size grind. Can they expect you to say we're going to, cause a lot of me and you love hunting them on water. I love being in waders. I love seeing a dog go into water and bring a duck back. I love the way they work vertically over water. The false runs and the horizontal working in a dry field is powerful. Watching them descend out of the sky and get right over spinners. Um, do you try to not, you know, a lot of people are like, we're not hunting the roost. We're, we'll hunt a day loaf once in a while. They're coming to these transition ponds in between the feed and in between the roost or the loaf. Will you go hunt a feed when it's that? How big does a feed get? Can a feed get too big to where you just let them keep feeding in there? Or do you want them out of there so they don't eat the cornfield out? How does that work? And how do you make up your mind on a dry hunt? It, it depends. I mean, if the opportunity's there, I mean, a lot of guys don't like to have to put waders on. Um, and that that's great. We can go do it. Um, when the opportunity arises, which is not like Canada down here. I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta be cold, you know, everything's icing up. So some of your water spots you're having trouble keeping open. So it is a good option. Personally, like you said earlier, it's not my favorite. Um, but the other thing from a guiding standpoint, Canada is not a big deal because there's enough opportunities. Um, there's always some smaller bunches, you know, coming out fives and tens and all that. But like in Missouri, when it's cold and they start coming, they're in mega, mega, mega bunches. So now you get down to only needing two ducks and every bunch that comes in is a hundred plus. It's like, God, you want to talk about nerve wracking. I mean, you're waiting for one to land or one off way, way off to the side. Uh, or you just cut it short and be like, Hey, we had a, we had a good hunt. Let's watch a couple bunches and then pick it up. We do the same thing in Canada. I mean, we stop, we stop two short, three short on, on everything every day. Just because there's, you, you never know what the collateral with them humongous bunches. With the experiences that you've done per had personally, Tony, the talent that you've acquired through your years, your guides, talent, your partner's talents, can you successfully, can you have a successful, powerful dry land corn hunt? with no spinners? I mean, I think you probably could. Do you just need a Are bunch of Canada goose decoys? Are they going to decoy like they do when you got six, six mojos out there though? I, I doubt it. I mean, that's what kind of turned the whole dry field hunting on was the evolution of the spinner. Why, why though, Tony? Uh, You've seen more ducks decoy than I have, and I've seen a lot. Why do they do it so easy over a spinner in dry field, but will make you feel like you have no talent over water most of the time, a lot of the time? Crazy. I mean, look at a pintail. I mean, there's nothing dumber in a dry field than a pintail, you know, no. especially like up in camp. I mean, they come as hard as they can come, here they come. Then you get them over water. Circle, 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 land 80 yards away. I don't know, man. I can't explain it. It's, it's crazy. And that's kind of what I wouldn't say it's what turns me off of dry field hunting, but I mean, you can blow a call and do all that. And I don't know. I mean, is it, is it for show? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to blow a call, but 100% it working? show. Now you sit in the timber hole where they're not 
or a little traffic hole or something where there's never a duck on it, but there's ducks going over it. And now you put 30 of them in there at your feet landing in the water. To me, that's, that's something. I couldn't say it better myself of, I literally on TV, Tony have said, I want you to meet my best duck caller I've ever met. And I'm like, literally like introducing a spinner, right. in a dry cornfield. I'm like, I know that you heard me calling, but I want you to know that that's not what was doing it. It's so funny that a guy like me would, would put myself on TV calling. Right. And I'm just being transparent with you, Tony, like, Oh guys, get ready, get ready. Here they come. You're building it. Right. It's part of the hunt. Like you said, you love blowing a duck call, but then you're standing there and you're taking pictures with all the ducks and you're doing cutaways and video. I have so many video clips of 30 mallards doing it right over the mojo with everybody standing up, maybe even a truck in the field. And, and we're sitting there taking, and it might not happen down here as much as it might in Alberta or Saskatchewan or Ontario somewhere. But you know what I mean? Those days to where you can't keep them out of the dry field and you forget to turn the mojos off and they're just like swarmed to. So it tells me like it's powerful and it's, it's needed once in a while, but I don't know. I don't know. I would do. I don't. I don't think I could ever do it more than three or four times a year down here in the continent of the United States, personally. Yeah, I don't. I, I agree with you, hundred percent. I mean, I think calling still does make a difference, sound especially when the ducks get tough, gets cloudy. You know, they're stale. They've been here a while. Even in a dry field, calling's going to make some difference. But by and large, it's it's that battery that's making the big difference. And you could do it. You could do it, but you know, with, without them, but would it be 500 at a time? Would it be a hundred at a time? Or would you just, you know, had you got a whole big dark spread of honkers and ducks, big field spread, would you be decoying, you know, pulling pairs and threes and fours out of them flocks where with the spinners going, there's a hundred of them coming straight to the ground. I don't know. So tell me the secret, Tony Vandemore, how have you done it? I remember sitting in a swimming pool with you in 2005 in Tunica, Mississippi, at an Avery Pro Staff convention. And we sat there dangling our feet in the water, talking about how much we loved Avery and how much we just loved waterfowl. And we were on the team, right? We were part of this industry. We were going to pro staff meetings and photography, and you were kicking ass in the snow goose game, and you you guys were running that deal. Um, how have you done it, Tony? What was the secret? I know that the number one when I look at somebody like you and I got nothing but mad love and respect for what you've done, but the vision and the work ethic, there is no luck involved. Now you might've got lucky in a bar one night and met a landowner that might've given you an opportunity at the first crack at buying a parcel. You might've got a nice lease, but what you have built. Okay. What is the secret? Is it vision and work ethic? I know you got to have the ducks, but you guys have built something, Tony, that has become amazing. How did you do it? Just in a nutshell, just give me what it takes to get to where you did in life. Cause you're still young at 43 years old. You had a successful baseball career. You have a lovely family, a beautiful wife and kids. I get all that part, but how did you go from that swimming pool and tunica 15 short years ago to building what you and your partners have built 15 years is not that long to build the empire that y'all built. How did you do it? No, I mean the, the biggest thing, and this is the, I don't get into all the, the internet stuff all that much, you know, the haters and, you know, everybody's got them, but it just kind of rolls off my back. But the one thing I don't like is when somebody tells me I'm lucky, Oh, you're just lucky. You get to hunt there every day. Well, that's, that couldn't be further from the truth because when we started this deal, I mean, we didn't have anything. I mean, we each had a, each had a farm and basically when, when I was single, that's what I did. I didn't take vacations. You know, I made a farm payment and I worked on the farm for fun and that, you know, made it better. And that's what made it fun. And that's what Aaron and Ira and Dan did. But we had nothing when we went to the bank and basically put this idea together and said, we got a farm we want to buy. Don't have a damn thing to put down for it, but we've got a good idea. And, you know, somebody, you get lucky. I mean, that part of it, you definitely get lucky. You get the right banker that says, okay, I'm willing to put you in debt for a long, long time based on your passion, your idea, your work ethic, and not based on you not having a, a pot to piss in for better reference. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you put it on, you put the idea in place, you take the risk. That's a big thing. You got to believe in it, believe in yourself, take a big risk. And then there's no replacing the sweat equity. I mean, it's not like, 
there's an endless pile of money over here to say, hey, let me go have Chad, uh, let me go pay Chad to run this corn planter and go pay, pay Billy to disc this field and plant millet to it. That doesn't cut it. I mean, you have to get out there and do it yourself. I mean, the work ethic probably is something that's been a big, big part of, of what we've done. Um, the vision, obviously, I guess you call it vision. I mean, we put a, we had a good idea. Uh, I don't even know if it was good. It was, it was a lot of risk and we, we took the risk and have definitely, we've all put forth the sweat equity to, uh, to make sure that we can make payments and make sure we, you know, have a roof over our head in, in the form of a lodge. Um, there's a lot of expenses and, and you just gotta be, gotta be willing. But back then I was, I was doing commercial insurance at the time and, and I enjoyed it because I could take all the duck season off, but I knew it wasn't sitting at a, sitting at a booth at a computer, wasn't going to cut it for me the rest of my life. And, and we all loved hunting and it just kind of, kind of transformed from there. I mean, it transformed from taking a risk and, and putting out a, putting out a mountain of sweat equity. Okay. You just said it in that last that part. And I was going to go into this when you quit talking. It's hard for me to tell when you're quit talking this, the internet connection we have is, and I want people to understand that I'm not trying to ever interrupt Tony. I'm trying to read you, but sometimes it's a little bit prolonged. And I know you're doing the same with me. Um, you said risk. Now I'm going to assume that your little commercial insurance gig you had going on was pretty pro It probably drew up some revenue. I bet you could have lived a nice little single lifestyle on the amount of money you were making. You could probably, I would assume, still take care of your family on what you would probably potentially be earning now this many years later with the clientele you would have built up in the commercial, uh, the commercial uh, insurance space, sitting in that cubicle on that computer, seeing the skies, knowing that you had to go to a lunch meeting to talk to this construction company about getting their policy updated, but the mallards are flying. It doesn't matter that people will go onto an internet and say, Vandemore, you're lucky you get to hunt there every day. The risk that you took is what is happened in my opinion, because Tony, you could have been a weekend warrior and hunted on the weekends, maybe even hunted three or four days a week and took some uh, insurance clients hunting, right? But that risk of putting it all on that line, that craps table, like, hey, I'm not just rolling these dice on this $500 bet. This is my life. This is my farm. This is my, my everything that my personal wealth and my portfolio is right now. This banker isn't going to come to me and go, to, hey, good try, Tony. Here's, get, here, you don't have to give me any of my money back, but I'm going to make sure that you don't lose any of your property. That's a big risk. And that's what dreams are made of. That's what dreams are built on is that ability to say, I'm going, man. And now 15 years later, after I hung out with you in that swimming pool in Tunica, Mississippi on the Memphis, Tennessee border, you're sitting here going, look at what that risk did, man. And that's all I'm saying is like, people can believe all they want building. Anybody could hunt there. Anybody could kill, not hunt there, but anybody could kill ducks where you're at. I don't disagree. I am so fortunate and so humbled that I get to talk to Tony or go to this place or get to go to Canada and have people roll out a red carpet for us. I'm so humbled by it. I'm not saying that a monkey couldn't kill ducks where I go. I've never once said that I'm even a good duck caller, let alone the best. I'm, I, I go to Arkansas and an eight-year-old will mop me up on a Tuesday. I'm not afraid to admit it. But what I say is, I just, I just went for it, man. I just tried like, and Tony went for it and the McCauley's went for it. And, and now from the rumor mill, there's more coming. There's more risks happening. They might be a little lessened, but it, it's, 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 it's that risk taker that gets rewarded and not everybody has that mindset. And I think that that's a huge part of life is listen, if you're willing to bet on yourself, then don't beat me up if I was right. That's all I'm trying to say, Tony, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I could have had a wonderful life. I mean, probably made more money selling commercial insurance. But at the end of the day, I mean, what are you doing? You know, you got to look yourself in the mirror. Um, do you want to sit in that cubicle every day? Or do you want to get out there and, and work on a farm? You want to be in the outdoors. You want to run rangers, running levees, running pumps duck hunting, goose hunting, doing all this every day. And part of that, you know, you're the same way. I mean, it takes, it takes a special person to be self-employed because, you know, me personally, nobody's going to push me harder than I push myself. I mean, it's easy to do things when people are looking, but what are you, what are you doing when people aren't looking? What are you doing at, at four o'clock in the morning when the rest of the world's sleeping? Are you turning the pump on? Are you 
putting boards in to let water out, do this, catch water. You know, it, it's the things you do when nobody's looking, they're going to, you know, kind of decide whether or not you can be self-employed or not, because you have to be able to be highly self-motivated because it's not just going to do itself. I mean, there's no replacing sweat equity. You got to get out there and do it. And nobody can, nobody's going to push me harder than I push myself. I love that. When, when you start, start talking about ethics, you know, what are you doing? Just not legal, not trying to get away with something. Just who are you in your own skin when the cameras are off or you don't have a rider in camp or you don't have clients around? It's, it's, it, it would be, and I've seen some of it. I've seen some of the behind the scenes, but you can't document it all, Tony. You, a camera crew can't explain what you're doing because then again, is he just doing it because the camera crew's there? It, it would be really cool to be a fly on your truck, you know, that got to go where that thing goes or where your ATV or UTV goes, where your dog, you know, be cool to get inside your dog's collar and just be a part of that for the off season. So people would have an understanding. This is no joke, man. You might get to see Tony doing this, but are you willing to go with Tony when he's doing this? Are you willing to wake up at 4am and go turn pumps and then not quit there? He, it's not like he gets to climb back in bed. He's it's like farming. It's farming. It's ranching. It's a lifestyle that's not cut out entrepreneurial spirit. Then you got the whole business on top of it. Now you got family, you got revenue, you got this, you got accountants, you got, you got money management, you got figuring out, do we need more property? We build the new grand or we, what else do we need? And now what I'm hearing, what's coming out of there, I'm just like, wow. Every time I hear it, it's bad ass, but it's about what you're talking about. Like, who are we in our own skin? Like, I hope duck hunters listen to this. And a lot of duck hunters listen to this, Tony, a lot. And I get inundated with messages about, Man, what you said the other day really hit me. I was driving and I and you and you were talking about this part of duck hunting. Just the pure majesty of this lifestyle, right? Well, I hope they hear this and understand how much work ethic goes into seeing a place like Habitat Flats and how humbled you're going to be when you go there and get to experience. I hope they hear this and go, man, that was built on risk, dedication, commitment, passion, vision, and work ethic, elbow grease, and sweat equity. It wasn't luck. It wasn't inheritance. It wasn't God. It, it was part of God's plan. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like you woke up one day and we're just like, hey, here you go, Tony, run Habitat Flats. It's not the case. It's, it's, it's really, I hope people hear this and understand that if you want it, wake up early, and go to work. Go to work, please. That's it. Just go to work. When, when we first started this deal, we were kind of like, hey, uh, do, we, do we need a lodge? Do we not need a lodge? And looking at it now, I mean, the lodge is such a cool deal because uh, you get to spend that much more time with, with guests. Um, you got great food. You got all that. But also, they get to see a little glimpse into what, what we do. So say you, you have a tough hunt, right? You're going to have one anywhere you go. I don't care where you're at. You can have a tough day. And uh, you go back to your hotel room, you sit on it for, you know, 24 hours till you get to have your next opportunity. You don't see anybody. You go out to eat with the group that you're with. Don't see your guides. Don't do anything. That's a little bit harder pill to swallow. Then you have a tough hunt. You go back to lodge, eat a big lunch. And then you're seeing guides that are working all day long, filling up pumps, putting in ice eaters, moving generators, doing this, scouting, trying to find that best option for you the next day to make sure that we don't have a tough day. You get a much better appreciation for what goes on to make that good hunt happen. Yeah, and I think as the client, I, I think when the client gets to see that, it's almost like what I said. I hope they hear this and understand, like, go check it out go now is it is it inexpensive when you start looking at the big scheme of things and how much you're going to pay in a season it's very affordable in my opinion now is it you're not going to get away with paying a couple hundred bucks and going to visit tony vandemore but what you got to understand what you got to understand is here's what you're getting you're not just getting that you pull that trigger you're getting an experience you're getting an education you're getting fun and camaraderie you're going to build a friendship that's going to last a lifetime you're probably more than likely going to end up with tony and his partner's cell phone and your phone you're going to stay in touch you're going to be able to get duck reports you're going to be able to get a text from tony if he has service and you're going to you're going to have a lifelong friendship and i think that that is a huge part of that vision and building that lodge and now another lodge and it's it's i think it's I'll say it again, and you've heard me say this before on our podcast. 
There's not a cooler lifestyle, man. When you're on that dirt road and you can look up and see those ducks, but then look over and see your family on the porch and then look over and see the grand and know that it wasn't given to you. This wasn't inherited. This wasn't a given. This wasn't even a, this wasn't even a, a layup, Tony. A lot of times when you're as good of an athlete as you were, you could have a layup once in a while. This could have failed on, on year two. What if Mother Nature came in and affected it? What if floods affected it? What if the Fed said no duck season this year? As, as listeners, let's put everything into perspective that Habitat Flats has done and built and know that it wasn't a layup, man. This could have been gone in a blink of an eye. And 15 years later, after those feet were dangling in that swimming pool in Tunica, Mississippi, and we were toasting each other on a great pro staff convention, look at where you're at. That's what people need to understand. You could have very easily just been, the world might not have ever known about Tony Vandemore. You know, that's what I'm saying is that it's vision and it's risk and it's reward. And I hope people understand that when you will go on that keyboard and type in, Oh, anybody could kill him there. Well, so could you just go book a hunt with Habitat Flats, man. It's that's just understanding the respect that I want people to have for what was built there. I think it's badass, bro. Well, thank you, man. It's been a lot of fun. That's for sure. I mean, you know, it's very, very, very cliche, but it's the truth, man. When you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. When it's 104 degrees, you're digging out a beaver dam. It's humid. You can't breathe. It might not be fun, but it sure beats sitting in an office. I love it, dude. I think what you guys have done, Tony, is so honorable as far as not just the what the living that you and your partners have made for yourself because i your partners would have had a fine life too without habitat flats they're smart individuals you guys have done well for yourselves in a lot of areas of life i just think it's cool that you guys get to live that i'm envious in a way to where i'm so humbled that i get to go a lot of places but to have that what you've built and be able to travel those dirt roads of Missouri and to see it and to witness it and the spectacle of it, there's just not a cooler lifestyle. And then to eat meals with your clients and your friends and your guides and then, to, and then go to work and then come back and get to have your dog on your lap and maybe get a quick 10 minute nap. Maybe um, it's just a, it's just a neat lifestyle and it was built. So man, I, I, I think that people need to understand if you want it, it can be done because I would say 15 years ago, I don't think anybody in that swimming pool or that convention space in Tunica had any idea what you were getting ready to do. I, I don't even think you did. So that's, it's pretty cool. It's been, you know, it's been neat too. I think the average, I don't know what the actual stat is. I want to say the average uh, lifespan of a partnership is around two years and we're going on 13 or 14, uh, you know, as partners and, and it's, it's great. I mean, everybody, you gotta be very like-minded, uh, have the same goals, the same vision. And just to keep something going that long is, it's been pretty cool. Well, man, kudos to you, Tony Vanamore. Thank you for coming on here to end this. Give uh, give our listeners what excites you the most right now, September 11th. Let's keep everybody that had family members perish in the Twin Towers in 2001 in our thoughts. This day is huge for our history of our country. What are you thinking about? I know that you're thinking about that. I know you're a very patriotic American. But when it comes to Tony Vandemore and Habitat Flats, I don't I know you have kids and a wife. I know you have part I know you got all that. What are you so excited about right now going into duck and goose season 2020 Biggest thing that excites me right now, like I said, uh, very much a patriot. And to know that tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to pour a cup of coffee and go duck hunting for the first time this year. And that, uh, you know, that opportunity is afforded me by all the people that have fought and made this a free country and kept it that way. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning, assuming that I can sleep tonight because I'm still like a a kid. I mean, this is opening, opening night for me. Uh, I'll probably wake up one, two, two thirty. finally about two thirty. roll out of bed and pour a cup of coffee, sit here, let the dog out. We'll probably have a little talk on steps, look at stars hopefully, and, uh, go hunting for the first time tomorrow. Duck hunting. That's awesome. Tony. It couldn't have been better said, man. That's Tony Vandemore, Habitat Flats. You can find him at Tony Vandemore on Instagram, Facebook. You can find Habitat Flats at HabitatFlats.com, the destination for ducks in America. More than ducks. I mean, it is an experience I have not. I guess that's my last question to you, Vandemore. Can I come hunt at Habitat Flats sometime? 
Yeah, we can make that happen. <laughs> I know a guy. I know a guy. It's been another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support us. Thank you all so much for the subscriptions and the downloads, the ratings, and the reviews. We're trying our best to bring you awesome content, and Tony Vandemore is a badass man to have on the podcast. We're humbled by it. Thank you very much. We'll go out with a little... Does that sound okay at all, Tony? Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Tony, thank you, brother. Tom, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. Thank you all so much. <laughs>